Hey listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up-to-date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive, dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This is the run through with Vogue. I'm Chloe Mal. And I'm Joe Minardi. And we are here in the Vogue offices in front of a live studio audience. And this is the first time we're doing that. I would love to hear from the audience. Are you excited to be here? It's like SNL. This <laughs> is uh, live from New York. It's the run through. <laughs> Um, we are hosting an event at Vogue called Forces of Fashion. It's basically a master class on all things Vogue. And we have the most exciting guest here with us. She's a writer. Her best-selling book is called My Body. She's an actress and an activist and, of course, a model. Emily Redikowski, welcome to The Run-Through. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Emily might not remember, but uh, maybe the last time we spent time together was when we were at a um, super spreader baby COVID Oh, yeah. Party. The super spread. The Omicron, um, <laughs> the Omicron baby spreader party. So all the moms and their kids got COVID together. Mm-hmm. But since then, we've bounced back. And I'm so are. much happier to see you here today, hopefully testing negative. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't know anymore. <laughs> like, do the tests even work anymore? Well, I actually, I feel like we should do a Vogue.com post on, like, the etiquette of testing these Mm -hmm. days, because I keep getting announcements from my preschool of, like, someone else tested positive. I'm like, stop testing. I don't want to (laughs) know. But Controversial, but I feel the same way. Yeah. Well, you must be one of the most photographed women in the world. And I'm wondering, like, you know, are you stalked by the paparazzi everywhere? Uh, Not everywhere. They do know where I live. Um, So I am photographed basically every day, which is a really bizarre experience. And... I have to say, you look amazing today. You're wearing the, my favorite shade of red. Can you tell us what you're wearing? I'm wearing Luave. Um, I love Jonathan. I'm a big fan of Luave and, and Jonathan Anderson. So I'm happy to be wearing it. And just to describe it, since this is a podcast, mm, right. it's this fabulous sort of Snow White's apple red, um, oversized sweater dress, but mini dress. Mm-hmm. Trema, would you Yeah, I'd me? agree. I'd agree. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> with some struck, with some shape, some bizarre some shape. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's always a twist with Jonathan. Yeah, there's always something that kind of is a signature, some oddness about it that I love. And I can't imagine having to get dressed every day if you're photographed every single 
day. What is that like? Because I don't think I've seen a bad photo of you on the street. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, when when there's that many pictures and, you know, Lord knows I can't control the lighting outside of my home. <laughs> no, I mean, yesterday I took my son to preschool in sweats and, uh, you know, sneakers. And somehow those pictures are still <laughs> circulated. I'm like, who cares? But it is definitely something I think about because the the longevity of those and the distribution of those images is so bizarre to try to comprehend. Um, I one time had the revelation, and I've repeated it many times since, that, you know, one image of me going to get coffee could be the picture that people, like, see when I die, when they Google my name. Right. And that's so weird. You know, it's a really bizarre thing because I think there's obviously so much media that there's also some things that are forgotten, for sure. Um, but, yeah, it's really weird. Um, so getting dressed... I don't know. I was saying this the other night. I was at my friend's um, book release party and I was speaking to a reporter and she said, how do you get dressed for an event like this? And I, w- I don't know what came over me, but I was like, have you ever seen the movie 13 going on 30? <laughs> <laughs> she was like, where are we going with this? Um, but that's sort of how I feel. I can't believe that I'm lucky enough to have the life that I do and live in New York City. And um, even though there is pressure and there's whatever, I sort of just dress for myself and really enjoy the fact that I'm an adult who gets to decide what kind of woman I want to be, whether that's me going wearing sweats to drop off my son at preschool or, you know, going to Vogue for forces of fashion. Um, so, yeah, I just try to enjoy it. I, th- I think of it as a self, self-expression. Yeah. A lot of your career is you're making money by having photos of you taken, but then paparazzi are just taking pictures of you and they're making money from it. So do you ever feel, are there, I've in your book, I think you say there are no photos of me that are just for me. Mm-hmm. Is there any way to take power over that or to, how, how do you sort of handle that? Yeah, I don't know about power, but I think control. Um, and, you know, that's something that I'm kind of striving for every day. Um, one of the things I've, you know, I, I wrote an essay about this called Buying Myself Back um, that explore, that I honestly could still, I could continue to write about now that I have a son and I'm thinking about his image and him getting paparazzi. For people who maybe don't remember, it was the most read essay on New York Magazine for the entire year. Thank you so much. You've done your research. Um, no, and um, it's, you know, the whole idea of the value you know, learning about the business and what makes, you know, um, what was my livelihood. It's obviously the images of me, but then having many experiences, not just with paparazzi, but with other photographers and in the age of the internet, where those images were used and people were profiting off of them and I had no stake in them. And it was this sort of really strange moment where I was like, if this is the most valuable thing about me for this career, then why are so many people exploiting it? And I'm not able to benefit from the usage of those images. Um, So yeah, it's an ongoing um, question. And no, I would say there there are photos of, you know, personal family photos that feel really special to me. And I think because of my son, um, I'm able to think about protecting him more than I would ever myself. Um, so that has changed. But in general, it is a bizarre thing. I mean, there are some paparazzi who understand that I do not want my son photographed and honor that. And then there are some that just basically don't care. And there's nothing I can do. Um, and, you know... It's a strange thing as he's getting older and, you know, starting to have an awareness of these photographers. Uh, the experience is 
I don't like it. I don't, I, because they're not safe people. They will photograph us if we fall. They won't rush to help us. And I need my son to understand that. Um, but I also don't want him to be fearful. So, yeah, yeah, it's weird. Have you talked to other friends, famous friends with kids and how they mm. navigate that? Because I think that's probably a concern that a lot of people share now. Yeah, I mean, it's actually amazing. Um, you know, I think Halle Berry and Jennifer Garner have done a bunch of stuff in California um, around protecting their children. And um, I think Anne Hathaway is also uh, starting to deal with that because she has children in New York City and experiences the same thing of like, I don't want my kids to be going to school and being photographed. But it's really personal, you know, and I think like so many things right now, we live in a new era where um, everything is online um, and we don't know what responsibility we have to our children to protect them um, and if it even matters or not when it comes to photos and I think everyone it's sort of a personal decision. Why did you did you start modeling and what was your first modeling gig like? Oh god I started modeling when I was 14 uh, well really younger than that I was doing theater school in San Diego and um, which is where you grew up. Yeah, that's where I grew up. I was born in London, but um, was raised in San Diego. And I had a acting teacher who said she should really think about modeling. And my dad was a high school teacher. My mom was an English professor. And they were thinking about how are we going to pay for college, all of that. So they were starting to meet people whose kids had, you know, a nice college savings because they were in one Kodak commercial. I remember there was this girl who, like, hit a soccer ball in a Kodak commercial. And it made such an impression on me because my parents were like, she could put a down payment on a house and that just blew my mind you know um so that was really you know I think my parents were both working it wasn't like a child star type whatever energy um but then I started modeling and um I signed with Ford Models when I was 14. And what was your first gig? I think it was like a teen magazine um editorial that probably did not pay or paid 50 bucks um I don't honestly don't remember the first time I was shot shot. Um, I did do like headshots and stuff before that for theater. Um, but yeah, it's a, it was a bizarre, you know, being that young and, and kind of not understanding anything, you know. Did you, it sounded like your parents encouraged you. Is it something that you wanted to do? Were you interested? I mean, a lot of young girls at that age, that's the dream, you know? Yeah, my mom always says, um, to me, like, you wanted to do it. And it's like, well, no shit. I was 13. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be a model, you know? And especially we're talking Y2K era, you know, Britney Spears, um, Christina Aguilera, this real, like, the most, to me at that moment, the most powerful and important women were famous ones and photographed ones. So I wanted to be a part of that, um, especially in middle school when right. I was like, what do I even look like? Like, am I a monster? Am I hot? You know, whatever. Um, and so it was this sort of, of course I wanted to do it, you know. And how do you think those first jobs guided your experience of modeling and guided your professional path in gen overall? They didn't. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that one thing that, you know, there are stories where people are like, I did this one job and then I did this other job and then 
woman. Like for me, it was so many years of just working. And I, you know, once I got my driver's license, I would drive myself, miss school and, you know, do a shoot and a job and not have to work a minimum wage job in a cafe, which was tight. (laughs) I loved that aspect of it. And that was sort of just how I saw it. I saw it as work. And it really wasn't until I'd had some fame that I started to be like, oh, right, this is a career. And it was partly because my my parents are artists. Like my dad is a painter, my mom is a writer, but they were never able to make a living doing their art. They had to have a profession. So there was this real kind of separation of church and state mm. for me mm. um, about how you made money and how what you actually did. So I went to a year of college and was planning, I was majoring in art and it sort of like I was planning on this just always being my side hustle Mm -hmm. that kind of allowed me to do what I really wanted to do. But I graduated high school in 2009, so the housing market had collapsed. I was very scared of student debt. I had seen what my friends were dealing with who were older than me. So when the opportunity came for, I was working a lot more, I was like, I mean, do I need a degree in art? (laughs) Like right now, you know, and maybe I should just, and everybody also, you know, really emphasized the idea of, you know, you won't have a long time for this. You're young. Women can only model until they're maybe 30, maybe, maybe. And that's if they're really lucky. So I felt like, oh, shit, I I guess I better do that. And that's when I dropped out. Mm. Yeah. Your big break for the maybe one person in this room who doesn't know was the Blurred Lines video. Do you, that was, how long ago was that? 10 years now? Yeah. 2013. Do you have, oh, exactly. Mm -hmm. Do you think back on it differently now, or is there, do you think on the experience like, oh, poor baby Emily, this was maybe different than I thought it was at the time, or? I mean, I wish I was better at, oh, poor baby Emily. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that in my life. I need to probably do that more, be more therapeutic. I wrote a, an, about it in the book as well. There's an essay called Blurred Lines because the evolution of my politics were, happened in relation to to this video and my attitude and my feeling around it. It's very complicated. When I was 21 and I became famous for basically dancing around naked in a music video, a lot of people came for me, not just the video and the lyrics and all that, but just for me as a 21-year-old girl who had been, my body was in this video. And I was very defiant because I was like, no, I get to do what I want and choice is powerful and I can be in my body and feel good about it and don't tell me that I'm not a feminist. I was raised by a feminist mom. Politics were a big part of my conversation. It wasn't something that I hadn't believed in before. So I took this really controversial stance because, you know, obviously the men are clothed in the video. The the lyrics are, you know, the lyrics are the lyrics. And uh, it wasn't until I was older that I started to think I changed my attitude around that because I thought about power dynamics in a different way. And I think that, you know, when you are in your early 20s and you are using your sexuality, you can mistake the attention that you're getting as being power. And so writing about the actual dynamics of the set, um, it was a female director and there were a lot of women, but who was actually in control whether who was entitled to my body, whether or not I was safe, 
it made me realize that actually, you know, this mistake that young women make, which is a fair one, because I don't know that I would be sitting here had I not done that video, which is very important to, to kind of recognize. I think a lot of people want to kind of skip past that. I, I would, you know, people, young women really believe that that's that's it. That's power, right? It's just like yeah. the Britney Spears thing. It's like, why did I want to model in the first place? And I, I think what occurred to me kind of from much, not because I was wanted this to be true, um, was that, you know, it's really, I think how I put it in the book is the, the power that was granted to me because of male desire left me indebted to the, the men who had granted me that power in the first place. And um, that's the evolution of my politics around it. Do you ever hear the song on the radio now? I mean, I guess no one listens to the radio anymore. But Do I hear the song? And it, does it like a trigger or are you like, ugh? No, okay. I'm over it. <laughs> Let's take a short break. We'll be back with the run through in just a moment. Hi, we're Carlene and Jill, hosts of Breaking Beauty Podcast, the show all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. On our show, you're going to find hella inspiring guests like Emily Weiss of Glossier, and you'll get beauty tips galore from the top pros in the industry, like Kim Kardashian's makeup guru, and you'll hear skincare secrets from the likes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Plus, you'll get shopping help with our Damn Goods episodes, where we review the latest products hitting store shelves to let you know what's actually worth your money. Listen every Wednesday to Breaking Beauty Podcast. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Whether packing for a destination vacation or planning a backyard staycation, Macy's has what you need this summer. Shop the easiest and breeziest brands like Nina Parker, Vince Camuto, and Dolce Vita. Macy's has all your must-have items from sundresses to matching sets to wedges, beach bags and towels, you name it. Stock up for summer at Macy's. Shop at Macy's.com slash own your style today. That's Macy's.com slash own your style. And we're back with the run through with Vogue, live in front of a studio audience. Choma, how are you feeling? Emily, how are you feeling? Feeling good. Feeling very like supported by our audience. Oh, great. Captive audience. It's true. Same. <laughs> they're a good, they're a good group. Emily, let's talk about modeling. If we had a magic wand and we could change one thing about the modeling industry, what would you what would you change? There needs to be unions for models. I think I think that's a really good idea. It's absolutely insane that there aren't unions for models. Um, I think that there are good agents. 
whatever, um, but it's a systemic issue where um, the agencies are more interested in protecting the relationship they have with the clients than they are of taking care of these very, often very, very young women who've just turned 18, maybe are leaving their families from, you know, very countries where they have no reference for an industry like this and they are taken advantage of and there's no one to protect them. Um, and I feel quite strongly about this. I am a very proud SAG member and um, I cannot believe the conditions and the sort of things that happen to young women um, in the fashion industry. And I'm not just talking about predatory. I'm just talking about fair pay, um, breaks, you know, accommodations. Um, and again, these are really young girls uh, and it's not okay. <laughs> Often I think that we, we see women pitted against each other in that world. Did mm. you Do you feel that there's a sisterhood now? Did you What was it like entering? Were there models who you kind of, is there a camaraderie? Like what's the community feel like for you? I think it's both. Um, I think now that I'm older, I don't know if it's about me or just being in the industry or Maybe it's also the climate has changed mm. and the world has changed. I think that there's more camaraderie and more communication. Um, that's one thing that I think a union would really help the industry with, just the ability to communicate about pay and about, you know, this client and this, you know, whatever. And communication is power, right? But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like life, right? It's like high school. It's like you have some friends who are great. But, of course, you know, a lot of, I mean, women and femme-presenting people have been taught that there's this sort of scarcity mindset we have to adopt, that there can't be multiple beautiful women, there can't be, you know, that there's a best, that there's whatever. And I do think that as particularly younger women suffer from that simply because they just want to be successful. And they think that, you know, by not sort of being supportive of other women, that they're somehow more, um, have a better chance at winning, quote unquote. Mm. Have you noticed, because we've definitely noticed it across mm. the fashion industry, but have you noticed that the Ozempic moment has affected body positivity and representation and modeling? Yeah. You know, I feel like it wasn't just Ozempic. I okay. think Ozempic was a symptom of thinness still being the ultimate. And I talked about this. I lost a lot of weight after I had my son. I was down to like 99 pounds. Very, wow. very small. And you know what? I was working a lot. And um, it's a really bizarre thing to sort of, I mean, but that, if that's not an example, I was at my least healthy, you know, whatever. And that's when I was working the most. So as much as I do see body positivity, as much as I do see some diversity, um, I don't think it's impactful enough. It hasn't sort of really gotten into fashion. Um, and I have a lot of friends um, who could speak about this better because their curve or whatever. And there's still excuses constantly being made about why they can't walk the show or why, you know, whatever. Oh, mm. well, we didn't have time to custom make that look or blah, blah, blah. And I think it's um, it's really unfortunate. What's your wellness routine and what's, you know, how do you stay well? Like, how do you mm -hmm. Are you a good girly? Yeah. Is it infrared saunas? Oh, I did get a wonderful facial yesterday. I was like, I need to do this <laughs> more often. Your skin looks pretty good. Thank you. Um, so my new thing is resting. This is my new emphasis, like, thing I actually talked about about my first, podcast. Everyone. Okay. <laughs> okay, but here's the issue about how we think about rest now. We think resting is being online. We think being in our bed and just frying out on our phones is resting. That is the least restful thing you can do for yourself. I used to love, I call it one-eyed scrolling. Where you're just like, 
you know, in bed, um, that is exhausting. I mean, the way that we intake the, the amount of information that we are processing on an hourly basis is exhausting on top of just your personal life, your professional life, whatever. So I got very sick last month, actually in the middle of fashion month. And, um, I came home and I was like, this is, it was a creepy kind of combination of symptoms. Like my stomach hurt, but I also had a sinus infection. Like, and I was like, am I dying? Is this it? Um, (laughs) and I basically kind of did something different than I'd ever done before, which is I just didn't look at my phone and I didn't work because I never think of it as working. I'm like, oh, I just answered a couple emails, but that's working. Mm. And that's exhausting. And um, it's a really different type of thing to go offline and to, I watched movies, not with also scrolling and not with, you know, reading articles and not with taking that hot TikTok take, like just rest. So I really believe in that now. And one of the ways that this has helped me is having a two and a half year old who's growing so rapidly that I'm scared of missing moments with him. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I've learned to be like present in a different way and it, and it helps. I feel better. I also, uh, in your book you write about, or I, I think it was in a podcast interview maybe with Ashley Graham about how you write every day and that that's sort of a meditation of sorts. Is that still something you do? No. God, no. So that's a keep up. Yeah. I mean, the art, I would, I'm not an artist way girly at all. I don't journal. Um, I'm unfortunately too much of an editor. It's something that I don't love. Mm. Like I, I just can't, I never, even when I was a kid, I couldn't keep a diary because I'd reread it and be horrified by how embarrassing whatever I was that it said. So, uh, no writing for me is torture (laughs) and not therapeutic. I mean, it's the best it is is cathartic at the end of the day but um no I don't I don't keep a journal I agree with you about writing being torture <laughs> it is it's, I mean it's like I it's like how people talk about exercise and working out where they're like it's so awful but then you feel so good yeah and what was it like finishing your book I mean didn't you have like that kind of you get that euphoria and then you crash mm-hmm. or it's like Dorothy Parker said everyone loves having written no yes one loves writing. no yeah. <laughs> it's true I mean you know what's weird I do the energy I have after a day where I've done decent amount of work is really um, at something. I'm in a good mood. Yeah, I had just had my son when I f- when I finished the book, and that was really wild because I'd written like ninety thousand words before I even sold the book. So the book was like kind of done. But then I was that's editing. a long book for people who don't. Normally you sell like one essay, you'll sell, you know, something and then you write the rest of the book. I was so prepared for people to underestimate me that I was like, and I was just so tired. I feel like I hear people say, oh, I'm going to direct this movie. I'm writing a script. I'm whatever. I was like, I'm going to, before I say one single thing, I'm going to write the actual book. But then the editing process is really serious. And there were things I wanted to add in and whatever. And mom brain is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a moment where I remember just sitting and being like, I've ruined my life. Like, I don't have my brain anymore because I gave birth to this baby. And I'm not going to be able to finish this book. How long did it take for that shift to... <sighs> I mean... You know, it's funny. One of the essays that I wrote after he was born is sometimes what people will come up to me and be like, that's my favorite essay. At the time, it didn't feel, I couldn't think of words. Mm. I was, I didn't feel that like connection to the focus that I wanted. But I mean, it worked out. I would say, I would say by the time I was doing press for the book, which was November and I had locked the book by June, um, I was like, when was your son born? March. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You you said that you were afraid that people might underestimate you. Do you think that 
you still feel, do you feel that people underestimate you? Has there been an example of that that you can talk about? Or People underestimate femme presenting people. Agreed. Period. <laughs> um, it's, I'm not special in that way. I want to be clear. And I think that, you know, um, you just have to kind of, I mean, one thing that's happened is I just don't care as much. People can underestimate me all they want and that's fine. It doesn't impact me. I used to really have this feeling of like, oh my God, I have to prove something. I have to do something. I have to, you know, have this accolade or, you know, the book needs to reach this kind of success or this person needs to approve of it. Or, you know, did I say now doing podcasts or my own podcast, did I say like too much? Did I say yeah too much? I don't care if you, if you don't like what I'm saying or can't understand it because you're so caught up in your own sexism about the way I'm speaking and my vocal fry. Well, fuck you. Sorry. I'm sorry. I felt like I was allowed. Um, we allow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I'm like, let's get rowdy. Here. No, but I just, I don't mind it. And I think everyone has experienced, um, you know, that, that before. I want to hear about your son. What's his favorite thing in the whole world? Well, he's very excited about being a purple octopus for Halloween. <laughs> Excellent. And what I'm, are you being? Well, so he keeps changing. It's really stressful. He keeps being like, "Mommy's a shark. Mommy's a crab." I'm like, "You got it. You got it. You got to pick something." You got to like, commit. I'm sure. Also, by the way, the time he gets this octopus costume, he's going to be like, "No, no, I want to be whatever else." Um, but it seems we have a sea theme. Okay. Uh, no, he's amazing. Um, he loves his favorite book right now is Eloise, which mm-hmm. I'm quite proud of because I love that book. That's very chic. Yeah, it's chic, and it's just it's it reminds me of my own childhood. Mm-hmm. And there's actually so much for. Um, him to kind of think about in it in a way that's cool. I mean, you know, I'm his mom, but I do think he's the best, (laughs) you know? Who do you go to for mom advice? I have an amazing network of mom friends that kind of came together, pandemic babies, um, and we have a group called Moms. And it's just fun. I mean, Sly had a rash on his, we were in the bath, this is last week, and a rash developed on his body, and I was like, oh my God, and I sent crazy pictures to the mom group and everybody sent their crazy pictures of rashes and what back. was it? Uh, I think it was an actually just an allergic reaction, but I was worried it was hand, foot, and mouth. So, which is a whole... We just had that. It was terrible. <laughs> so it turns out that's going around, which I wouldn't have known had I yeah. not had this mom group. This generation of moms are so refreshing because they're just so honest about all the feelings that they have around, around this shift in identity and uh, this responsibility. And I think that's so much more healthy. Do you think about your mom differently now that you're a mom or the way she parented? Yeah, um, I think about both my parents differently, definitely. Um, It's bizarre to come into the world and be like mother, father. And then, you know, my parents were always um, very bohemian, so they always felt like friends. But just realizing like, oh, they had had this whole life before. And then they had this baby that they had to, you know, take care of. And without the internet and without the kind of attitude of, just brutal honesty, you know, that mommy blogging, thank God, kind of brought around actually over 10 years ago. I remember we, we shot you actually when you were quite pregnant and you were, you were glowing. It's one of my favorite pictures of you. Um, how did becoming a mother change your relationship to your body? I think it's like such a transformative experience. Yes, it was. When I was writing my book, I realized I'd become like, I'd become obsessed with control. It's one of the reasons I like writing. It's there's nobody else. It's just me deciding what words go on the page. It's my story. It's my POV Um, and control of everything, right? Like ownership of image, blah, blah, blah. 
And what being pregnant taught me, which was also a lesson about my body, is that actually sometimes the way to be the most at peace and oddly in control is to let go. <laughs> my body was just doing things that I didn't understand and just marching forward in this incredibly humbling way where I was completely out of control. And there was a world where that could have totally sent me, which I have had friends that that's happened to. But instead, I just leaned in and actually with birth specifically, there was a surrendering of control and this like faith in my instinct and in my body and what it was, what it's able to do and the knowledge that's there. And um, I really believe that actually before we started this, somebody asked, um, what's the best advice you've ever gotten in your life? Which is a tough question. And I said, trust your instincts. And I do actually think it's sort of related to the lesson I had through birth. Um, there was a recent internet moment of mom shaming of like a mom of like a party mom, a celebrity party mom. Mm. And I, people really came to her support. You are now a dating mom. Mm -hmm. Do you feel judged about that? Do you feel that there's a stigma attached to it? I do. I do. Um, I think that, you know, there is this sort of classic archetype of femininity and this journey of, you know, you're um, a child and then you're hot and then you're a mother and then you die. <laughs> and um, it sucks. It's not great. Um, and I just don't believe in that. I don't believe in that arc. And I think that the best way to change that is by living, you know, your authentic life and not trying to fit into these kind of boxes that um, have been prescribed to us. And how are you enjoying single life? I mean, I know you've called, um, as, as young divorcee, a chic. Yeah, I do think it's actually kind of chic. I think it's um, really interesting. I'm actually thinking about writing about divorce. And I um, called on a couple writer friends to offer a bunch, like, what's the best divorce writing? So we had, like, Rachel Cusk, and um, there, there's a bunch of books that I'm reading right now, and they're all about women who are older and their families are coming apart. And I do think that my generation, there are a lot of women getting divorced quite young, and I want there to be more resources about that um, because I think there is still such a taboo and so much shame in the idea that divorce is failure. And listen, it's, that's hard, and that there is some, there's a loss, absolutely, with, that comes with divorce and separation. But, you know, women don't always get the share, the, the, the fair end of that deal marriage, right? Um, you, especially now because women are working and they're making oftentimes more money than their partners. And then they are also taking on all the responsibilities at home. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that there are examples of women deciding to opt out of that and saying, this isn't failure, this is evolution for me and without the shame. Um, so I hope that that happens more and more. Are you on any dating apps? I am. I never check it anymore. There was a t there was a minute where I was like, "Let's go," um, and now I'm. I don't know. I think I'm. Uh, I don't need to see another profile. I don't. You have to take breaks from that. Yeah, I think I might. It might be a permanent break. Um, I did. I have not gone. I went on one date, but it was somebody that was a mutual friend, so it doesn't really count as an internet date. Yeah, that's a fake internet. Yeah, date. thank you. I always have a lot of anxiety creating a profile. Did you do it with a friend or did? Like how do you? So pick I the have pictures? always been that friend. 
friend who curates all of my other yes. friends because, you know, I have some experience in curating an image and whatever, <laughs> and I love it. Um, um, yeah, no, I did it. Yeah, I, I always ask advice. Definitely the first round when I put it up, I was like, what the hell? Talk about what pictures do I use? You know, like, does it, is it like the goofy, like, <laughs> you know, this is what it would be like to FaceTime me or am I like serving, you know, I didn't know what to do. Um, so I, I've kind of, yeah, I did, I was consulted. I was, I got good, good help. What makes you swipe right? Oh God, what makes me swipe right? Um, I mean, I feel for these dudes on these apps because they don't always know. There's a lot of like pictures from one wedding they went to. <laughs> and I'm like, don't, just because that's a professional photo, that doesn't mean that should be the one you use. Like, I want to know how you dress. I want to know like what your vibe is. And um, they're not always good at curating the vibe. So I feel bad for them because I'm like, I don't know. I think you're just bad at this and you might be lovely in person. Um, so just maybe no wedding photos in the general world. <laughs> So I take it you don't want to get married again. I don't know. I actually don't. I don't feel that way. Um, I would maybe get married again. It depends. Uh, when was the last time you kissed someone besides your son? Oh, wow. This podcast. A hot scene. <laughs> um, I don't kiss and tell. All right. We love to hear it. Good answer. Well, you have, you have a collaboration out? AGG. Um, oh, yes. 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 And are there any designers that you're dreaming to now that you've is this your? This is not your first collab, right? It isn't. It isn't. Right. So you've um, collaborated with you. Yeah, I love designing, and I think it's really fun. I mean, and then I get to have those pieces in my closet and give them to my friends. It's fun. Yeah. My dream. Come on. This isn't. I mean, Miu Miu, <laughs> like you know, Prada, Lueve. Um, as much as I was talking about unions and protection, whatever, I have to say, I love working in this industry. I just think that there are so many amazingly creative people who are doing really interesting things, and um, so there's just a ton of people I would love to work with and and have been lucky enough to work with. Yeah, it must be fun being on the other end, especially you're you modeled, you know exactly what works on your body, you know, yeah. you know, what looks right. Totally. Um oh that's the beautiful thing about the way that the industry has evolved is that, you know, models aren't just thrown in, you know, they have their personality does and their politics and their, you know, thoughts and ever, they, them as a person and as an identity plays so much more into them as a model. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. What is your cultural diet? Ooh, it's kind of all over the place. I mean, I really love TikTok. Like, I love TikTok. <laughs> What's your I'm, TikTok? Like, what are you getting? Oh, my for, my FYP. It changes. I have been on lesbian TikTok, which I am so honored. <laughs> so on, I'm unworthy, and I'm there. And it's just lucky. I still, can you believe it, love to read books. What are you so, reading right now? Um, Deborah Levy. It's actually a book about divorce. What do you know? Um <laughs> But it's really, it's beautifully written. And, oh, well, I also have to give a shout out to my friend Z-Way, whose book, her collection of essays just came out, Black Friend, and I did just finish that, and I recommend everyone go and buy it. Um, I think pub day was three days ago, so um, got to get her on the bestseller list. So everyone order multiple copies. Yeah. Last question. Mm. What is next for Emily? Do you have another book project happening? Are we going to, what are we, what are we looking forward to? I definitely always plan on writing. Um, I'm not going to ever say that I'm just as I'm in the tradition, I never say I have a book until I have it. Um, but, um, you know, I'm really interested in 
mediums of expression. So for me, it's like I am interested in film. I'm interested in um, video. I'm interested in podcasts. And so for me, it's kind of like the sky's the limit in that sense. Um, And yeah, just I love living in New York for the time being and I'm raising my boy. And we're so looking forward to what you've got in store in 2024. So thank, thank you. you so much for thank joining us. Thank you so much us. for having me. It was yes. wonderful. It was thank you to our wonderful, enthusiastic audience. That's it for this episode of The Run-Through with Vogue. See you next week. Yeah, see you next week. Thank you both for having me. <laughs> the Run-Through with Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis and Gabe Kiroga and mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you soon. Bye. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com.